Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Pete Durand, along with the wonderful Henry Hoffman. Henry, how are you today? Hello, Captain Pete. How are you? I'm doing great. We are honored to have one of the coolest names, by the way, in neurotherapy, and also one of the coolest people. Tiffany Top is on the program. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So you have your own thing going, but you're also a full-time OT, so you're a busy person, mm-hmm. and you're a West Virginia grad. I am. Go Mountaineers. We haven't talked about many Mountaineers in the program. It's good to have you on the program, and I know you sport your gear proudly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> When we did our prep call, she was in the car with her Mountaineer gear on. Oh, very so, nice. Uh, yeah, it was. It There's was nothing solid. like West Virginia fans, I'll tell you. It's true. It is very, very yes. true. <laughs> Tiffany, I think you know in the program, what we like to do is push the boundaries a bit on neurotherapy. Henry, as you know, has a fairly progressive viewpoint. But we're part of our journey is just to find out what folks like you who are living it every day are experiencing, things you've learned, and then things you can maybe help our listeners either go explore further, whether they're a patient or a caregiver of a stroke survivor or someone with a, a traumatic brain injury, or they're a therapist like you, right? That's part of the, the opportunities for them to learn from their peers. So since I'm not as smart as either one of you, now's my time to shut up and let Henry take it from here. Oh, you're so nice, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tiffany, Pete, we're really excited to have Tiffany. Tiffany is a longtime friend that I haven't seen in a while. This goes back to the Charlotte days. Tiffany, we met probably at a Sable course. That's how it probably started. Actually, we went all the way back to when I lived in West Virginia, and you did a course in Morgantown, West Virginia for Health South, ah, you and your brother. I was trained right. by the both of you. Well, I remember flying into Morgantown. I think that was called the International Airport, maybe, which is a joke. I don't think there's going to be called the International Airport anytime soon. But I do remember that plane particular because the pilot, they didn't have, this was post 9-11. And I was surprised to see that I had access to the pilot. There was no cockpit door. It was a puddle jumper. And when we landed, that pilot was also in charge of baggage claim. And he also helped me with a rental car. Isn't that kind oh of crazy? Gosh. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun time. I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's a college town right there. And I do remember that location, the house out there, had a big hill right in front of the hospital that goes down to the road. I forget the road. But those are good and times. Right? Yes, that was a long time ago. So yeah, we've we've known each other for quite some time. And I see you as a trailblazer, OT. You've done some wonderful things over the years. And I wanted to first just... Let's get caught up. What are you currently doing with the mobile therapy as well as your per diem work at the acute hospital? If you can kind of share your journey and and where are you at professionally at this point? I've been an OT for almost 20 years now. I graduated in 2002. So my work background consisted of inpatient rehabilitation, outpatient rehab, had a bunch of kids, so I did a lot of per diem work, but mostly in outpatient. And now for the past 
three years, I've been working mostly in the acute care setting. And just recently, December of 2020, I started my own PLLC, Next Dimension Rehab, where I do mobile therapy. Congratulations. Was that a, uh, a tough decision or were you excited and, and ready to get into that? It was scary because, you know, just learning everything that you need to know about billing insurances and getting a EMR system and just getting all the paperwork together to get your EIN number. And there's just a lot of technical things that you don't learn in school that you have to learn on the fly. And it's helpful. I've been a part of different Facebook groups, of different therapists doing the same thing. So you can ask questions, you know, it's a nice supportive group of therapists that you can find online. So that journey has been very, it's been interesting. It's been interesting, but it also gives me a sense of, I don't know if belonging is the right word, but just being able to be my own boss and make my own decisions about what is best for my clients without having to check this policy or that policy, or can we bring in this technology has been a lot more freeing for me as a therapist. Sure. And for the patients listening, the caregivers, as Mm -hmm. you think about the progression of, let's use stroke survivors as an example, once they suffer a stroke, they go to, their life is saved through the emergency Mm -hmm. room stroke care, right? And so they're there for a few days, they go to an acute ward or acute hospital, which I know you can get into in a second. And then they're there maybe for a couple of weeks and that's where they're stabilized and mm-hmm. they're learned some basic independence and, and trying to get some strength going. And then they move on to a rehab hospital. And then after the rehab hospital stint, which may be a couple months, right? Which I'd get your opinion on. Usually not, not okay. that long anymore. It used to be. It used yeah. to be when I, 15, 20 years ago, you know, length of stays could be a couple months. And now, you know, about 21 days is average Okay, so uh, 21 days. And then, so you're in rehab mm-hmm. hospital for 21 days. Mm-hmm. This is now traditionally for the typical stroke survivor, still within a 30 to 45 day window post stroke. And then after that, they're discharged and they're either going to get home health, mm-hmm. outpatient, mm-hmm. or maybe something like the mobile therapy that you offer. So give the audience an example of what your day's like working in the acute hospital system and the stark difference. When you see them, because you're getting them on the front end and you're helping them on the back end too. So can you share that a little? Yeah, yeah. Working at a trauma one hospital, I have gotten to work in the neuro ICU when people are just right out of surgery, whether they need an evacuation or they have something to drain the fluid or you know, your more serious hemorrhagic strokes. You know, I've I've been there and the biggest role I believe as a therapist being on the the very, very front line, you're the first person that they really encounter in their journey. And education is the biggest thing. Just making sure that they understand what a stroke is and, and how it's happened and educating the family on what to expect next, because the whole rehab process can be so confusing. So that's the big thing. And giving them things that they can do in the room, because in acute care, you might get about on average, like maybe 25 minutes of therapy, five days a week, usually is about max is what you would get in the hospital. 
from one discipline and then another. So if you're working with, let's call her Mrs. Jones, mm-hmm. and she just gets admitted, and you mm-hmm. and it, just a fresh stroke, right? And you have her probably no more than 10 therapy days on average, right? right? right. You know, research has changed over the years. They used to say, start very intensive early. And then there was rat models mm-hmm. and other studies that showed early intensive therapies actually could be harmful to the recovery process and the brain. So how yeah. do you balance that in, the, in that 10-day window? Because I know a lot of it's going to happen in the rehab hospital, in the subacute. Right. How do you balance not wanting to get started as soon as possible, balance the titrating the intensity aspect, mm-hmm. and then what are you primarily focusing on with those patients for those 10 days while you have them in that very first hospital experience? I think it depends also on the severity of the stroke and what you're seeing. So there's a difference between someone who has complete hemiplegia and then someone who may have some shoulder going on and some hand and, you know, starting an early recovery. With those people who are starting an early recovery, then you want to really emphasize the use it or lose it. Just whatever you can do with that arm and that hand, do. If they're completely flaccid, then we're working more on protection and positioning and passive range of motion and making sure that when you start getting that motor return, we're not fighting against joint stiffness. We're not fighting against soft tissue shortening, things like that. Yep. I would, I would agree completely with that approach. And the only other thing I would probably add, and this would be me being greedy, but I have to be <laughs> careful with some of the research is those priming techniques. So with the flaccid mm-hmm. folks who don't have the ability to move, is it too early to do mirror box, mental practice, action observation therapy, those other priming strategies that mm-hmm. are perfect for patients that are flaccid that don't have that movement yet? Some argue, hold on to that. It doesn't have to be right away. Wait a little bit longer. Let the brain heal. Let the mm-hmm. swelling go down. And that's probably the right answer, but it's good to get started. Like you said, all strokes are different. Depends what stage you're at and, and the process they have. Yeah. And, and it also depends on the cognitive ability of that patient too and the family support. So if you have family members, and a lot of times there's a family member in there all the time, all the time, and they want to know, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? So I give them as much as they want to help their loved one, because if we're only going to be in there this much and they're there all the time, then educating the family is, is very key. So to button up this first question I have, okay, that was a great example of what you're doing in the acute stage. Mm -hmm. Now contrast that with you're seeing them post-rehab hospital discharge. And mm-hmm. you're now Tiffany Top, the, the guru of mobile therapy. What's that experience like? I've had different experiences with, you know, patients when they're coming out of the hospital, they've been told things like, well, you know, whatever you have after three months is pretty much what you're going to get, which is totally not true. Totally not true. And the thing that is most important is the mentality of the patient. If they can see themselves getting better, if they can see themselves moving their arm and they have the drive to get better, that is like more than half the battle. So if they're willing to work, then I will give them as much as they want to work. And you're so, doing it in their house, right? Is this the mobile No, no, no. I go to they, their home. Yes, you're doing, their home. you're doing it in their home? <laughs> yes. And that's got to be, I mean, talk about functional and purposeful and going to what you said where, you know, they're not plateauing, they can break through micro plateaus and, 
And mm-hmm. neuroplasticity requires you to continue to do the high reps of purposeful movement. What's right. more purposeful and functional than being in someone's home while doing therapy? Has that been, have you noticed mm-hmm. a, are they more motivated or at least are they, do they have a better attitude versus being in the clinic? Have you noticed a difference in their mindset, emotional set, energy level? What's the difference doing it in a home versus the clinic? I think a lot of patients, by the time they get up and they get dressed and they get in the car and then they go to the clinic, they're probably neurologically stimulated, overstimulated, and tired. So to be able to go to their home where they can be in comfortable clothes, one thing that I like to do is I like to set up a home program type box or or area or somewhere where every day you're going to do something in this box over here. So this is your special box? Is this a Tiffany box? <laughs> I, <laughs> no not as, it's patient specific. Yeah, I know you treat, you treat various diagnoses from stroke to uh, yeah. lymphedema and, and Parkinson's. So you have customized home program toolboxes, mm-hmm. if you will, right. that you then set up for the client. Okay. Right, right. And just really emphasizing to them, telling them what the research says. You know, research says that you have to do lots and lots and lots and lots of repetitions more than you think. This is not a three times 10 exercise program. You know, that's not how this works. This is your new full-time job. This is eight hours a day. What are you doing to help yourself progress through this? You know, so it's not like, oh, I didn't do my exercises today. There is no, I didn't do my exercises today. You have to, if this is your goal, if you want function, you have to do things all throughout the day in order to reach that goal. You know, Pete, this is you being in the health and wellness industry for a long time and you understand behavior, especially with motivation. One of the things I used to do when working at Burke, and I don't know, Tiffany, if you've ever done this Mm -hmm. before, I used to have behavioral contracts. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a waiting list at our hospital outpatient clinic, so we could pick and choose who's going to come and who's not based on who's most motivated. Because the last thing you want is a, Mm -hmm. a client who is canceling, no showing, not committing to the home program. So we had a one page contract. These are the 10 Mm -hmm. things they need to do. If they initial all of them, we'll continue to see them. And we're going to reassess that once a month. You know, Pete, did you... Did you kind of see that with even with clients that are not afflicted by a, an injury, just just at the oh no health and wellness? No question about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think and Tiffany to your, to what as Henry was describing in a clinic, your time is valuable, mm-hmm. right? If you're giving your time to someone who's not committed, you're taking time away from someone who is. So that's why that contract's so important. So I'm curious because I, I ran a, a, up against the same thing, you know, and by the way, when I dealt with people who in, as a trainer, their goal was to get more fit or lose some weight. And in reality, 95% of what my clients dealt with was 100% in their control. They could choose what to eat and they could choose what to do with their time. When you're dealing with someone who suffered a stroke or a brain injury, they've been dealt a pretty difficult hand of, you know, a pretty difficult hand. So they're, they're facing a challenge that none of my clients ever face. So they're up battles more. And I think their repetitions are more, I think it was more difficult to see progress versus you know seeing it on the scale, right? They could do thousands of reps and see very little movement. So I'm curious, Tiffany, I think this is where Henry was going, is how much of your time is spent in the emotional mindset with your patients versus the actual therapy? Is it somewhat balanced? Do you, are you able to weave that into the therapy sessions? Describe that for us. Yeah, I think that is something that I've learned over the years, how to 
approach patients. You really have to be a chameleon. There are some patients that really need a coach. They need you to just be upfront in their face. Look, this is what you got to do. You don't do this. This is what's going to happen. And they respond to that. And then there are others that you have to sit down and have that conversation. Okay, what is stopping you from using this device every day? Getting down to, can we put this directly into your routine every day? Can after lunch every day, can you commit to just one thing? So if I have a patient that's not internally motivated, then I will give them one thing to do. I want you to do this one thing. And, you know, one of the things that these, this is one of my favorite tools. If you have any flexion in your hand, a flex bar is just a very easy thing to do. If sure. you have, if you can grab it, can you take this every day, once a day? And can you just bend it for me? If you can't do this, then it doesn't make sense for me to give you two, three, four, and five other things to do. So we start with sure. one thing and then we just build on top of that. Those little progressions allow them to see enough progress to realize, hey, if I put put the effort in, it's going to work. Right. Right. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. And Tiffany, so we talked about motivation. Let's actually talk about some of the neuro stuff. I struggle with getting clients to be able to track their repetitions. And you brought up education early on uh, when we were discussing, and then rightfully mm-hmm. so, I think what's missing big time is when the client suffers a stroke and the family's in shock and they're going through those Erickson stages, they're not experts in stroke recovery. They were not supposed to be experts in stroke recovery. When I have a problem with my car, I go to a mechanic because they're the expert. I don't know what's going on. Some people are wonderful with cars. It's just not me. So just like these individuals. And a lot of times they don't get a good explanation. And it does take someone that's going to sit down for the extra minute or two, mm-hmm. be encouraging, because it's so hard, you know, it's very easy for us to de- get desensitized because we're seeing so many patients on a weekly basis. So we right. lose some of that bedside manner. So right. to have that proper bedside manner, continue to be empathetic and encouraging and take the time to walk them through the recovery process. Here's what's going to happen to you over the next 90 to 120 days. This is what's right. probably going to take place. And this is step one. And step one is you need to start to use and engage your affected side. And here's what we're going to do to engage the affected side. Now, when they get to the subacute stage, when the brain healed up, it's safe to do intense therapy, and we're now looking for hundreds of repetitions. I think that's the disconnect at that point. We do a great job, some of us, explaining that we have to have these patients do hundreds of repetitions. But how are the patients being held accountable for that? They don't have sensor devices to track every rep. Remember, there's mental reps like mirror box and mental practice, action observation therapy. And and for the folks that are not familiar with action observation therapy, that's when you actually observe another patient doing exercise. So if, if two patients are in the room and one patient is watching the other patient doing a functional task with their affected limb, just by watching, research has showed that the brain lights up in the observer cortex, same area as if they were physically doing that task. So good news for lazy people, right? Like myself. (laughs) But we already know that. How many times have we watched Tiger Woods golf swing if we're trying to be a better golfer? Yeah. You know, so observation therapy actually works and it's a proven technique. 
So mirror box, observation therapy, mental practice, those are a lot of reps that you can do without even lifting your finger. And then you have your physical reps. And if we're trying to get to 300, 400, 500, 600 reps a day, how are we really tracking that? So some people use clickers. I've told patients, let's figure out and calibrate how many times you do a rep in five minutes, and then we'll just multiply. So then we'll know every time you do this for 20 minutes, that's how many reps it should be. And then check it off. Have you done anything or learned a trick that we need to know about to help your us and others communicate better to patients about the best way to track reps and make sure they're held accountable for that? Well, one thing that I thought about when you were talking was when I was working in the outpatient clinic, I formed a group called the Upper Extremity Recovery Group. And it was for patients who had limited visits, like some of these private insurances, they give you 20 visits total and that's it. Or somebody who may not have insurance it wasn't for Medicare patients because they get a lot. Right. And one of the benefits that I saw of this, and, there, and, and we could fit about six patients in the, in the clinic, and it was from like five to six on a Thursday or something, something like that. And they would just pay like, I think it was $40 a month. So it was like $10 a week pretty sure. much to come. Wow. And they would have, I had a, a tech and I had a volunteer and I had myself. So it wasn't one-on-one therapy, but it, I, what I did was I set up different stations in the clinic. And one of the things that I noticed is how much they were encouraging them themselves. If somebody's struggling to pick something up and they would say, hey, you know, I used to be like that, but if you just keep going, you will get better. It sounds different coming from somebody that knows exactly what they're going through than a therapist that doesn't exactly know how they're what they're going through. So I never really thought about how them watching each other could actually be a neurological benefit. You know, oh, yeah, to, to doing that. Tiffany, let me ask a follow-up question because that's very important. Mm-hmm. Right. In today's well, here we are. We're on a, a call and we're sitting in three different parts of North Carolina, I believe in South Carolina, right? So we've got the Southeast well represented. Could you imagine, and again, I don't know if this is even a legitimate question, if there were three or four people who were in post outpatient care at home mm-hmm. sitting on a call like this, mm-hmm. would they be able to inspire each other the same way virtually as they would be if they were in the room four feet from each other? Do you think that peer motivation would be helpful? Do you think that's a service people would crave? Henry and I are, we're always trying to figure out how, because we have, we treat people all over the world, mm-hmm. which means Henry can't be everywhere. You can't be everywhere. So how do we reach people with technology mm-hmm when this is a very tactile thing, do you think it's possible? I think so. I think so because I'm also a part of different stroke support groups online. Okay. And people are constantly asking questions. What did you do for this? And what did you do for that? Or they'll post a video of themselves walking or they'll post a video of, look, my hand opened today. To have an actual small support group that you could bounce ideas and have somebody kind of mediating things I think patients would really enjoy that. So that moderation would be relevant. Yeah. Having someone who can mod. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Henry, any follow-up questions on that? Not so much on the remote therapy. I do agree. That can definitely be helpful. And I think the big limitation with group therapy with neurological clients versus, let's say, people at the gym is everyone has their own limitations, whether it's aphasia, 
in a wheelchair or someone with high level or maybe someone with cognitive issues. So you'd really have to kind of organize the groups where they're tailored to be with individuals who's suffering the same limitations. And I think then it could really do well. Tiffany, you were mentioning earlier before the call that you also do some lymphedema. I was hoping yes. you could spend a few minutes explaining to the audience what the heck is that and and what special training do you have and and mm-hmm. do individuals with stroke also have lymphedema? Yes. So April of last year, I got my CLT certification. It's a 10-week intensive, 135-hour course to get. Yes. Yes. So uh, I think it was 10 days, nine-hour days for 10 days straight. Wow. No break. Yeah. Very intensive. I see a lot of swelling. Anytime you have a dependent limb, you're going to have some type of swelling. And one of the things that I learned in the lymphic edema course or that reinforced what I was already doing is the use of kinesio tape, you know, kinesio tape for facilitation, but also kinesio tape to help with swelling. So anytime you give what a, kinesio a, tape is. So kinesio tape is like an, it's an elastic tape. You may see that type of tape on Olympic athletes, you know, during the Olympics, you see their, their shoulders might be taped up, you know, their knees may have some tape on it. Basically, depending on where you place it, how you place it with direction of pull, you can actually use kinesio tape to facilitate finger extension, you can facilitate dorsiflexion. But I see swollen hands a lot, especially when they don't have a lot of movement. And putting that kinesio tape on there, the next time I see them in a couple days, the swelling is almost totally gone. So, I mean, it really is a, a great tool. Yeah, it's amazing. I've, I've used that for pain yeah. as well as swelling. Mm-hmm. And it is neat to see. So with your lymphedema patients, besides the hand, where do they typically have the biggest issues? Is it in the shoulder? Is it the elbow? Is it the leg? Where are you usually treating them? My most complicated lymphedema patients are the lower extremity ones. So the more swelling that you keep in your legs, the worse your skin will tend to get over time. So that swelling gets thicker, the more that it stays in there. And then you have skin changes that happen and that increases your risk for cellulitis and skin infections and and things like that. And so So, what do you typically do for those lower extremity ones? What do you recommend for anyone listening who may have some swelling in their ankle? or leg and Mm -hmm. say, gee, I might have this issue. What would you typically prescribe for that individual or what would you do? The whole thing about lymphedema is called complete decongestive therapy. And that consists of three things. So one is skincare. So making sure that any type of swelling that you have for any reason, when the skin is stretched, it's more likely to get micro fissures in it. And where you have little cuts in your skin, you're at risk of infection. So skincare is number one, making sure the skin is washed and cleaned every day and lotioned. The drier the skin, the more likely you have the cracks. So you want to protect the skin. And then number two is the compression. So we use, we don't use ACE wraps because ACE wraps stretch way too much. We use short stretch bandages that have just a little bit of stretch. That's what we learn to do as a, as a lymphedema therapist. So we do a bandaging technique the pressure on the limb allows like an osmosis effect to the body to reabsorb that fluid through the limb system. And then the last thing is maintenance. Once we can get the limb down and the swelling out, what do we do to maintain that? 
that's where there's a lot of grief for the lymphedema therapist because insurances don't pay for compression garments most Isn't of the time. Isn't it unbelievable? It, it just it just drives me crazy, and they're not cheap. They are not cheap. I think about the reimbursement problems that we have mm-hmm. in general. Um, what what's covered in therapy and what's not covered, and it's it's very unfortunate for stroke survivors and other diagnoses that they right. have to pay out of pocket for a lot of these things that should be considered medically uh, necessary. Tiffany, the last question I have is, again, our audience is going to be primarily stroke survivors, so I wanted to end on a stroke survivor topic. You've been doing neuro rehab for a long time, too. And where do you think stroke rehab is going? And where will it be, let's say, 5, 10 years, 15 years from now, from your perspective, from a technology perspective, from a outcome perspective? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think, you know, being in the health field for probably the last 20 years, I've seen the, I've seen the trend of what health, health insurance is covering. And I've seen the length of stays shorten. And, and what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing this migration of therapists that are getting frustrated and they're doing what I'm doing. They're going outside of the typical corporate healthcare America and finding patients that just want that one-on-one with a therapist to help them get better. So I see stroke rehab going in a way that patients are going to be more educated. They're going to have more choices. So right now, you know, the choices are okay. So you can go to rehab, you can go to outpatient and home health and, you know, and then that's it. So I would like to see more gyms and more community centers really centered around getting equipment in that is accessible, not just to patients with disabilities, but patients who are geriatric and patients who are bariatric. You know, you don't want to go to a gym if you are disabled with other able-bodied people to look at you like, why are you here? And and a lot of times in, when I worked in outpatient, what we would do is, okay, your insurance benefits are up. You know, we want you to continue with the home program and we would suggest that they go to a gym, but that's not always the safest for these, these types of patients. So I would like to see more centers coming open. I'm seeing a migration of exercise physiologists actually coming on board side by side with therapy and getting an exercise prescription from the therapist and then a cheaper route of being able to do more with not just therapists, but other disciplines. Well, you bring up something that's near and dear to my heart for the future as well. I have a lot of contacts, and this was pre-COVID, where the goal was to start working with gym operators to see if there's mm-hmm. way, ways to get more access to neuro clients. Because it's amazing how many patients I've worked with, a lot of them do go to gyms, and a lot of them do have trainers, which is good. A lot of them don't, to your point. We need more. And even though we're licensed occupational therapists, I got to tell you, a lot of patients get more motivated around a trainer, and I'm, um, I'm now promoting and propping up Pete, than OTs. Sometimes OTs and PTs, they're, they're set in their ways, and, and they don't have that personality as a go-getter and a motivator, as a life coach, as trainers. I always tell my patients, look, don't save your money. 
for half the price, you can get a wonderful trainer coming to your house three times per week, or maybe they can help you at the gym. So I'm 100% on board with improving that access. And I think that's going to be very important in the future. So that's a good observation. And, and definitely, Pete, let's add in the show notes, Tiffany's contact details. If patients listening happen to be anywhere near Charlotte, they'd be lucky to have Tiffany as a therapist. So if anyone's in that neck of the woods, definitely look her up. But thank you, Tiffany, on that nice uh, conversation. And, and I know I know one of the things that as an OT, I was told I had to be an advocate for my profession when I was in school, but I didn't realize how much of an advocate I really needed to be, especially when it comes to evidence-based practice and things that I know personally work and research shows that work. So for one thing, the mobile arm support, I had to advocate for two years in order Mm -hmm. to get that piece of equipment into the clinic, you know? So it takes a lot of patience and a lot of endurance to really fight for something. Cause like I said, it's, it's just so lower extremity oriented in the clinic. You know, you got bikes, you got the new steps, you got, you know, all these things from lower extremity. It's like, well, (laughs) if you can't lift the weight of your arm, what's a TheraBand going to do? And what's a hand weight going to do if you can't hold on to it? You know, you need more things in the clinic that a patient can use on their arm and be able to do all those repetitions because one or two with just lifting the weight of their arm, then they're done. Right, Pete, if you ever, next time you go into a hospital, and you'll walk down the hall and you're wondering where the PT or the OT gym is. It's extremely obvious. When you go to the endless square footage space, that's the PT gym. And then when you go to the closet on the right, that's typically the OT gym. Hopefully that does change. And my other gripe as a OT is when hospitals have no problem cutting checks for these fancy robots because it Mm -hmm. brings in business. Yet most of the evidence, the most beneficial evidence-based practice strategies are pretty darn cheap and they don't need to be robotic. So, and Tiffany, are you going to have a robot in the home with at, at your client's house? No. So I do no. wonder and question some of the decision-making at the hospital level, but Pete, go ahead. Well, Tiffany, there's a reason you're on the program and, and that's because we're looking for people who aren't going to settle for the norm. Right. Right. Who are going to advocate not only for the patients in their clinic, but advocate for the, the people that have left and are now trying to, to tackle this at home. And, and I think one of the things we're trying to do with this program is connect those people who are at home. As you described earlier in the program, you know, somebody may have already written them off. Mm-hmm. It's not the case. And as Henry described, there are very simple things they can do. They just need to understand that they're there, how to do them. And sometimes I think the biggest thing that they understand is just checking off that they did it that day is enough of a win. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean I can lift more, do more. Just the fact that I did my reps is the win for the day. So I'm so grateful you spent some time with us today. And as Henry described, if I was in Charlotte, I'd come to see you anyhow, no matter Mm -hmm. what I was doing. But uh, thanks for being on the program, Henry. Thanks as always. And that's another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. See you later, Tiffany. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau Podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. 
The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individuals, and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk.